0: Okay, y'all, open to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at 8 through 24. Uh, Tony, Barry, and I moved to Simsbury, Connecticut, which is 20 minutes outside of Hartford, uh, at the same time, which was the freshman year, summer of the freshman year, going into high school. Tony from Arizona, Barry from Ohio, and we were coming from Texas. We became immediate good friends because we obviously had that new coming, not knowing. A lot of folks in that community had been there a long time. In fact, that whole town had been there for a long time. When we drove in, it said 1620. And Pete and I looked at each other and said, and it still looks like it. You know, we were coming from the booming, bustling metropolis of Houston, right, where everything was new. Well, it was basketball season for Barry and Tony. It was wrestling season for me, so after a basketball game on a Friday night, the three of us were going to grab some food and hang out. (laughs) But Barry had to go home first to take care of his dog, which we already knew and we had already planned. See, we knew Barry's parents were gone for the weekend. We knew that he was home alone, and we knew that he was a spooky, easily spooked kind of person. And so we planned, yes, in the spirit of Halloween, to do something spooky. He said, hey, man, I'll meet you all there. And we said, cool. He headed to the locker room. We headed to the car. We looked at each other and said, you got the key? Check. Good, let's go. Because we got his key. We snuck it out of his house about three days before without him knowing because we knew which drawer his mom kept it in. And so we pull up to his house, park around the block, so he won't see the car. We let ourselves in, see his dog go into the kitchen. There's a middle kitchen counter, and we sit, plop on the floor. We pull out one of those old Mattel football games, beep, 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 and start playing. And we waited. Barry pulls into the driveway. We click off the game, and we crouch behind the kitchen counter like this. Now, what happens next happens in very, very ultra slow motion. Barry comes into the house and he sees his dog that he needs to let out. It's one of those little, I don't even know what it was. It just looked like a, a ball of hair. It was about this big. But you know what this dog's name was? Oh, we gave him endless grief for it. Tammy. <laughs> oh, Tam! hey, Tim. Hey, and you know, we're back there going, <coughs> you know. Oh, good girl, Tammy. Come on, Tammy. Come on, let's go. Let's go, Tim and he starts heading towards the kitchen to go out through the back door and that's when we jumped up in unison and went "Ah!" and I know we waved our hands something like this too now I've always wondered when I watched horror movies do people really scream like that and do they scream like that with their hands all up in their face like this they really do Barry screams and screams and screams and he's still screaming and that's when Tony and I looked at each other and we go this isn't going like we planned because Barry thinks he's in Annabelle time I don't know what he thinks he thinks Freddy Krueger came to his house Friday the 13th I don't know what he thinks so about this moment we're like hey Barry hey hey it's us it's Tony it's Jeff it's okay you're okay and he's still screaming. <laughs> and he turns and he goes into the den, comes back with a golf club, and starts coming at us. <laughs> Woo! Record-breaking international bestseller of horror, Stephen King said, I like to scare people, and people like to be scared. H.P. Lovecraft, early 1900 author of American Horror, said the oldest and strong emotion, strongest emotion of mankind is fear. <laughs> Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 13 years preaching through Romans, called The Last Puritan Preacher, died in the early 80s. He said, when a man is defeated by life, it's always ultimately due to the fact that he's suffering from a spirit of fear. The spirit of fear is the real ultimate cause of failure in life, all failure, all unhappiness, end quote. Edgar Wallace, in his 1916 novel, The Clue of the Twisted Candle, wrote, Fear is a tyrant and a despot. More terrible than the rat, more potent than the snake. Duke of Wellington. You know what he was called by his men and his enemies? Iron Duke. And he did what no man had ever done. He defeated Napoleon, the great French general, right? You know what he said? The only thing I'm afraid of is fear. Dune the best-selling science fiction novel of all time, has this litany to fear. There's a group of characters in there they are trying to overcome fear, so they create a litany for fear, and they actually train people in overcoming their fears, and this is their litany. It goes like this. I have no fear, for fear is the little death that kills me over and over again. Without fear, I die but once. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me, and when it has gone past, I will turn my inner eye to see its path. For where fear has gone, there will be nothing, and only I will remain. We live in a world of fear. We live in a world of fear. Welcome to Genesis 3. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you shine on the page? Thank you that you are the author of your word. You are the illuminator and enlightener of your word, and you are the applier of your word. So, Holy Spirit, come. Come and blow in our presence, and we ask this in your name, amen. Amen. Now, there's a collection of popular children's stories uh, called Ask the Bones, and it goes like this No one in the family ever went up in the attic. They hoped eerie sounds up there were made by branches scraping against the house, but they took no chances. And that was wise, for up in the attic, there was. What's in the attic? (laughs) What's in the attic? In Genesis 3, the world is introduced to fear for the very first time. I want you to look at verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence, literally face, of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Do you see it? There it is. It's experienced. It's felt way before the words even mentioned. They're hiding in the trees. They hear the sound of the Lord, and they make for the trees. Fears everywhere in this text. Fear is dripping from this text. Then you look at verse 9 and 10 and it's named. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. And there it's named. This is the first mention of fear in the world. The first mention of fear in the Bible. So fear is a big deal. Did you know that the Bible's most frequent command is not one of the Ten Commandments? It's do not be afraid. Over 300 times the Lord says that. We are a very fearful people. So what's in the attic? Adam and Eve say it's not Annabelle. And it's not a creepy clown. God's in the attic. God's in the attic. That surprises you, doesn't it? surprises me. It's not what I expected. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the origin of fear. Have you ever wondered why you fear? Have you ever wondered why you're so anxious? Have you ever wondered why you worry so much? Do you know that there are multi-forms of fear in the world, and they're like rabbits. They continue to reproduce at an astonishing rate. If you just look at Wikipedia and look up the phobias that are out there, they're the most bizarre to the most normal right? Fears everywhere, but you know what's interesting? What we're going to do in this text is we're going to go to the headwaters of all fear. We're going to go to the source of fear from which all these other fears have multiplied like rabbits. And then we're going to look at what fear does to us, and then we're going to look at the only way to deal with fear. Because if you've had anxiety or fear, you know it is an overwhelming experience. (laughs) You know there's absolutely nothing you can do when it hits you. When you are afraid, It sweeps you away. What if there's something that's more sweeping? What if there's something more powerful? What if there's something more overwhelming that actually engages your mind and your heart than fear? And that's how we're going to end. So, what's the origin of fear? The answer is found in two places. You're going to need a Bible. So, if you grab one, uh, look at your electronic device. The answer is found two places in Genesis 3. Both are saying the same thing. So if you can hear it, listen for it. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked. Verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. Do you see where fear comes from? It's real clear, being naked. Fear comes from being naked. The origin of all fear comes from being naked and what does this mean? Well, you know, there's two Hebrew words for naked in the Bible. There's, there's being nude physically, and that's what's happening in 225, before the sin entered the world. But after the sin entered the world, in 237, 310, the rest of the Bible, there's a different Hebrew word used because there's a deeper nakedness going on once sin entered the world. It's the nakedness of being spiritually naked before God of being broken, and messed up, deeply, deeply flawed and imperfect. It's this nakedness of just being unrighteous, and self-absorbed, and self-creating, and self-obsessed, and curved in on ourself. There's just this dark mass of self-absorption all over us. There's this sense of other words like ungodliness and we're stained and we're unclean and it's, it's being guilty, it's being unworthy, it's being unpresentable, it's being not enough. It's being ashamed. Remember that painful, primal experience we looked at last week? You know where that comes from? Shame from being spiritually naked before God. And when that happens, we're spiritually naked before other people and we don't even realize it. And we're spiritually naked before ourselves and we don't even realize it and we're spiritually naked before the law and all the millions of laws that are out there. We get spiritually naked before the law of thinness. We get spiritually naked before the law of success and the law of achievement and the law of whatever a performance record is in your career, or whatever the law of someone's human approval. This is why we're so afraid. We are so afraid because we are spiritually naked And ashamed. We fear shame. 60 Minutes interviewed the sole survivor of the crash that killed Princess Diana of Wales, the bodyguard, Trevor Reese Jones. He was asked, Trevor, do you feel guilty? And he said, Man, it's human nature. It's human nature to feel guilty shame before God because of our spiritual nakedness is in the core of your being it is the dominating driving deepest emotional structure in a fallen human being the fear it generates. This is why we are so afraid. This is the monster in the attic. This is why we're so insecure. This is why we're lacking in confidence. This is why we're so self-doubting. This is why we overcompensate with overconfidence and pride and we overcompensate with a lust for power and control. Either way, we have a monster in the attic, and it's called being spiritually naked before God, meaning we're ashamed <laughs> and we fear shame. But what does this fear of shame do to us, though? What does it do to us before God, before others, before the law, before the millions of laws? First, I want you to notice it's a true experience. Do you see that? This is an absolute true experience. This is not psychobabble. This is not something a psychologist or psychiatrist can heal you of in one day. This is an actual, genuine, core human experience of every human being. I want you to look at verse 8. We're going to literally read it. And here's the literal translation. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking to and fro. It's actually he's marching to and fro. The walking is a a stronger word than a stroll. It is a, a march. So you have God marching to and fro in in the whirlwind of the day, not the cool of the day, the whirlwind of the day. If you have an English translation, you should have a footnote there that says whirlwind down below, or spirit. And what that means is when God hurled a whirlwind, it's the same Greek word, when God hurled a whirlwind at Jonah, when on Mount Sinai God showed up and there was a whirlwind at Mount Sinai. Anytime God showed up in the Bible, there was a whirlwind as the judge showed up. The moment that Adam and Eve were still breathing when they sinned, God was coming into the garden to judge. The picture here is not a lovely stroll in the garden around 6 o'clock p.m. when the sun goes down. The picture here is a terrifying cosmic trial. This is why W.H. Auden calls our age and every age of the human race the age of anxiety, because every human being on the planet feels deep in their soul that they're on trial. Do you feel that way? You ever heard of performance anxiety? Man, every Olympics, when the gymnasts get up there, I cringe because I know what's going to happen. You have these 12 to 16-year-old girls that have so much pressure on them, and they feel the pressure. They're incredibly gifted, incredibly talented, and without fail, at least two of the best of the best crumble right before our eyes on, on national, international TV. It's not that the pressure of competing did it to them like the competition was putting them on trial, though they were. And it's not that parents do that to children, though they do. It's not that our bosses do it to us, though they do. It's not that we do it to each other, though we do. It's just that in the core of our being, it's already there. We're on trial. And so we're scared to death. We fear shame in the core of our being. We fear not being good enough. Therefore, not worthy of love and acceptance and relationship and alienated and discarded and rejected to become a nothing. Before God, before your spouse, before your children, before each other, before the law of thinness, the law of success, or before the law of the Ten Commandments? What does the fear of shame before God looks like? It looks like a true experience. It's a true experience. It's not psychobabble. We are not enough. We are not good enough. We are marred, scarred, broken folks. Second, it wrecks our relationship with others. Do you see that? Look at verse 11. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Ah, this is a beautiful response. She made me do it. You know the one you gave me, the friend, the buddy, the companion, the ally. She made me do it. And so Adam blames God, right? And then he blames Eve, right? Then what does Eve do? Look at verse 13 the serpent deceived me and I ate. In other words, the devil made me do it. So there you have the two excuses of all time. He made me do it, the devil made me do it. They did it, I didn't do it, or the devil made me do it. Those, those are the, the ancient codes that we live by, right? Now, I've said this to you before, but I honestly tried to think of a better way of communicating this or illustrating this, and I couldn't. Uh, when Nancy and I would have one of our marital adjustments, and, you know, we're, we, we believe just like you're supposed to change your oil, you should have a good marital adjustment about every 3,000 miles. So it just kind of goes with the territory of marriage. So as we're having one of our marital adjustments, in the middle of it, I turn to her and I say, Honey, you know, I used to be a good person till I married you. <laughs> you know what's crazy? I meant it. Why do we tell our parents it was the cop's fault for our DUI? and the pot they found in the glove box? Why do we blame our recent unemployment on the blind boss who just doesn't see our potential and our abilities? Why do we tell our friends that it was Mrs. Johnson that had it out for our little Johnny because he failed the class or wasn't doing well in class? Why? Because we want to exempt ourselves from the sin and shame of the human race. We think we avoided the fall. Do you see what's happening in this text? Everything that's happened in this text, we saw sin invade the world, we've seen sin destroy the world, but do you see one of the primary messages that God has for Israel and has for you and me? One of the major ways that we show we're in sin is we deny it. We blame others. We blame the devil. It's not that they're not involved, because they are. There are curses on both sides. William McDavid, in his book Eden and Afterward, writes, "'Try as we might, there's no way to deny the universal reality of guilt. Each of us feels it in our shame.'" before the other, before God. But even though guilt itself cannot be denied, there is a way to deny guilt that that applies to me. In other words, we can localize the reality of our guilt and shame in someone else. The way we get rid of our shame and guilt is we put it off on somebody else. We localize it in them. What does the fear of shame look like? It looks like a true experience, and it looks like a wrecked relationship. We wreck our relationships. So here's some quick applications. John Newton wrote, a person truly illuminated, someone that actually grasps the reality of being a sinful person and a shameful person, will no more despise others than Bartimaeus after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and then go around and beat every blind person he saw. I'm healed of my blindness. You're blind? Whack. The first mark, the primary mark of being blind to our own sin and shame is that we beat others who are also blind. This is why we need to check our moral passions, and we need to check our political passions, and we need to check our cultural passions, and we need to check our theological passions. Where do we beat others who are blind? Also, we need to recognize that the deepest struggle, one of the deepest struggles within us is deny our own sin and shame by localizing it in someone else. We need to see that we struggle deeply with this issue of shame. And then third, we need to have compassion on others. We need to start with our spouses. Start with our kids. Start with each other. Start with those that have sins and weaknesses that are not like ours. And start start with those that actually, like, are addicted. And serial sin, have compassion because there is no us versus them. There's just us. We're in it together. There's this guy named Paul Zoll, and I've always wondered, why is it that, well, I don't, I don't wonder it now, but I did in the beginning. Why is it that when every pastor wrecks his life in the country, they go to him? And you know what he does when he counsels people and they tell their stories of their wrecked lives and they tell their stories of how sin and shame have wrecked them and they tell their stories of how they've wrecked this and wrecked that and they go on and they'll go on and they'll go on and he'll laugh with them, he'll cry with them, he'll hug them. And then at the end, the first words that come out of his mouth is he'll say, Welcome to the human race. Sister, Welcome to the human race. There is no us versus them. There's only us. So we can have compassion on each other that we're all in this together. We're all in sin and in shame and really scared about it together. How do we deal with the fear of shame before God? What do we do? Here's the answer. We can't do anything about it. Look at verse 24. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The way back to the garden, do you see this? The way back to the garden is more than hard. It's impossible. We can't get back in. We can't get back to the garden. We can't get back to a world without the sin. We can't get back to a world without spiritual nakedness in our life. We can't get back to the world without shame. We can't get back to the world without fear of all of this stuff. We can't save ourselves. But through this story is something that's just astounding to me. Did you see it? Adam and Eve, though, throughout this story change. It's crazy. Did you see that? Through a story in which the day you eat of it, you'll die, and the courtroom happens. Justice is meted out, and they change. They actually reconcile their divorce They repair the ruins of the wreckage of their relationship. Did you see that? Look at verse 20. The man and his wife, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam named his wife Eve. He didn't name her the mother of all trouble, the mother of all ball and chains, the mother of all shame, the mother of all sin. (laughs) He said, this is Eve. She's the mother of life living. What happened? What happened? Verse 15 happened. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you notice this is an announcement, not an exhortation? This is an announcement of what someone does and what someone accomplishes. This is an announcement of good news, not an announcement of good advice. This this announcement gave them hope. This announcement changed their life. This announcement gave them the ability to actually wrestle and deal with the sin in their life and wrestle and deal with the shame in their life and wrestle and deal with the fear in their life. What's the announcement? The announcement is absolutely breathtaking. There's a human hero who is also heavenly Who comes in and ends the evil? He comes in and crushes the head of evil, crushes the head of the sin, crushes the head of shame, crushes the head of fear. Has victory over it. I mean, look at this this heavenly hero or this human hero, uh, her offspring, do you see that in verse 15? That means Eve's offspring. This is a human. Her offspring is also a he. Do you see how he follows it up with the he? He's a human, but the hero is not only human, the hero is also heavenly because it has to be someone powerful enough that comes from the outside in and invades and goes into the invasion of the sin and death and wickedness and evil and shame and beats it. So it can't just be a human hero because if he's a human hero, he's in and under the sin and the death and the evil one and the shame. So it has to be a heavenly hero who has more power than the powers that are at work in the world, and he crushes them. How does he do that? Well, there's two clues clues for us here. The first one's in verse 21. Look at this. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve's wife garments of skins and clothed them. And this is unbelievable. God clothes Their nakedness, that deep, deep, deep spiritual brokenness, messed up trauma, wreckage that they were, and God closed them by spilling the blood of another. The skins come from an animal, and this is not a bikini, this is a tunic. It goes from the, the neck down to about the ankles, and God covers all their nakedness. He clothes their nakedness. This is why Paul, when Paul refers to ourself, he says, put on the clothes of Second clue is in verse twenty-four. The only way. Let's read that together. He drove out the man in the east of the garden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The only way back to the garden is to pass through the flaming sword. It's to die. And the he, the human, heavenly hero, passes through the flaming sword for you and me and takes us with him. Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the shame of us all was laid on him. This announcement's what changed Adam and Eve. The announcement that God has destroyed, crushed the head of the serpent, which represents all evil, celestial and otherwise, the sin that's invaded the world, the shame that's invaded the world, and the fear that's invaded the world without destroying them. So Jesus was pierced for you, so you're free to live forgiven, and you're free now to forgive others. You're free now to say, hey, welcome to the human race. You're free now to to carry the burdens of others. You're free now to have compassion on others. Jesus was shamed for you, so you're now free to live an unashamed life, and you're free to not now shame other people. Jesus passed through the heavenly sword for us. Right here in Genesis. It's the whole story of the Bible. Amen.